Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, can self-deception be beneficial? That's one of the questions animating Shankar Vedantam's new book, Useful Delusions. It argues that holding false beliefs is not necessarily a sign of pathology or ignorance, but rather a means for accomplishing certain goals. We'll talk to the Hidden Brain podcast host about the lies we tell ourselves and each other and the role some forms of deception play in sustaining relationships and making us happy. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. If you've listened to Shankar Vedantam's podcast, Hidden Brain, then you know that it's about seeing reality clearly, about recognizing the mental errors that can keep us from the truth and from becoming our best selves. But recently, Vedantam says, he's come to realize that holding false beliefs also has a vital role to play, that seeing what we want to see can keep us from dysfunction and despair. His new book with Bill Mesler is titled Useful Delusions. Shankar Vedantam, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me, Mina. I'm so thrilled to be here. Well, we're really glad to have you. And I'm really wondering what made you, a person who reveres logic and reason, begin <laughs> to wonder whether delusions or self-deception could be good for us. You're absolutely right, uh, Mina. This, this is not the kind of book that I would have expected that someone like me would write. I'm a deeply logical and rational person and have tried to live my life by the dictates of reason and logic. But I will say that over the last 10 or 20 years, I've seen inklings of places where reason and logic don't accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. Um, sometimes this is in the political sphere. Sometimes it's in the sphere of you know, popular communication. Uh, let me give you one big example, the, the question of climate change, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, there have been numerous studies, hundreds and hundreds of peer-reviewed studies at this point, documenting the reality of climate change, the effects of climate change, the consequences of climate change. And yet for the people who don't believe in climate change, this uh, peer-reviewed body of work, uh, this, this research body, does very little to convince them. And so I've started to ask myself, is it possible that maybe in some cases, in some situations, is there another approach that might be more effective, especially when you know, the fate of the planet hangs in the balance? This approach, you mean, that, that relies on the parts of our brain that respond a lot to storytelling, or even as you use the term delusion, I guess one thing that would be useful is to understand how you 
define delusion or self-delusion? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Yeah, and that's exactly right. That That is what I mean, you know, that there might be places in our lives where we actually want to embrace the part of the brain that is what I call the self-deceiving brain. Um, and you have to do this with caution, of course, because self-deception and delusions can be really harmful for us. So I'm not suggesting that all self-deceptions and delusions are good, but they might indeed be places where, in fact, they can be functional. So at a very simple definitional level, you know, I'm, I'm defining self-deception and deception and, and delusions as things that are basically the inventions of the human mind. So things that are not based on outside reality, but things that are invented by the human mind. Um, and I'm making the case that at least in some, in some situations, there may be places where these delusions can be useful for us. To, to talk about the example of climate change that I mentioned a second ago, you know, every January, I'm a sports fan and I follow football, uh, you know, and I see people, you know, playing football in January in very, very cold weather. And you see these fans in the stands and they're, they're standing in the stands, you know, bare chested in like 12 degree weather <laughs> where it's, there's blizzards and snow around them. And they have their team colors, you know, written all over their chest. And I sometimes ask myself, where are the people who demonstrate this kind of passion when it comes to fighting climate change? Surely, if defending the honor of your football team is worth this amount of passion, surely defending the safety and, and sort of survival of the planet is worth a similar amount of passion. And I, and I think the fact that we don't have that points to what I'm talking about, which is that there are areas of our lives, sports being one of them, that are very effective at harnessing the self-deceptional, the self-delusional brain. There are other areas of our life that are very important that might do well to take a page out of that book. I see. What are some other examples uh, that we, some of the ways that we practice self-delusion? You've described them as useful. Um, I think you've also referenced how self-delusion, for example, fantasies or daydreams have helped us get through the pandemic. Indeed. Yeah, there, there's different ways of thinking about delusions. And I think it might actually be helpful just to start with some of this, the basic ways in which the brain operates. Uh, you know, just before I did this interview with you, Mina, I, I, I ate something uh, really delicious just a second ago. And as I was chewing, I was reflecting on the fact that the experience of taste, right? You, you bite into something sweet, for example, and you chew it and it feels pleasurable to you, that perception of taste is entirely an invention of your brain, right? So sugar in itself does not have taste. Sugar obviously has a chemical signature. That chemical signature interacts with the receptors on your tongue, but your brain interprets that chemical signature as sweet and sends a signal to the reward centers in your brain to light up to process this as being delicious. So the experience of sweetness, the experience of taste is really a, it's a delusion in a certain way because it's an invention of the brain. But it's very useful, of course, to think about why it is this delusion has come about. In our ancestral past, it turns out that as our ancestors ate certain kinds of food and avoided certain other kinds of foods, they became more likely to survive. And so over countless generations, over thousands or millions of years, our brains learn to perceive certain chemical signatures from food as having certain kinds of taste in order to nudge us in the direction towards certain kinds of food or to nudge us away from other kinds of food. So that would be an example of how uh, a delusion that's in the brain, an invention of the brain, if you will, can actually be quite useful when it comes to guiding our daily behavior. I see. I, I want to invite our listeners to join this conversation. We're talking with Shankar Vedantam, NPR, uh, 
NPR science correspondent and host of the Hidden Brain podcast. His new book is Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. And if you have questions or comments or examples of times that you yourself have knowingly indulged in self-delusion, give us a call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Shankar Vinodham, you write about a lot of complexity in this self-delusion. And one of the examples uh, that I found particularly striking was the story of a man named Donald Lowry. Uh, part of the reason that this example is so interesting is because you say that this particular story that surrounds this person basically exemplifies how self-deception or self-delusion is extremely complicated and can can require a complicity between those who are deceiving and the deceived. Could you tell us the story of Donald Lowry? Absolutely, yeah. So Donald Lowry was a con man, and he operated uh, late 60s, 70s, 80s in the United States. He was a balding, uh, middle-aged guy who prized himself as being a writer. So he thought of himself primarily as being a a writer. And he invented various characters, young women whom he called angels. And sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, he hit on a very unusual and bizarre business model. He started writing love letters in the voices of these angels to thousands of men scattered across the United States. Uh, The members were said to be part of a group that Don Lowry called the Church of Love. And in its heyday, the Church of Love boasted as many as 30,000 members across the United States. Um, Now, these, these members were receiving letters from these women that they thought were real. Many of the members wrote back to their correspondents. Uh, the, the, the letters went back and forth over a period of uh, months, years, and sometimes even longer than that. But what's remarkable about the whole story is that when the, the con was finally unmasked and Don Lowry was brought to trial on charges of mail fraud, several members of his Church of Love showed up at his courtroom to defend him. So they spoke in favor in, in favor of Donald Lowry and, and the defense. And I found this to be an astonishing story. I mean, it's a bizarre con, but why is it when a con is revealed, why would the marks show up to defend the con man? Several people who testified at the trial said that the love letters had saved them from alcoholism and drug addiction and depression. A couple of people said the letters from the angels had saved them from suicide. And as I read these uh, these trial transcripts and as I interviewed some of the members who had been part of this of this scheme, I came to understand that in some ways my initial understanding of the story, which is that the members of the Church of Love were just you know, deluded fools, that they were simpletons, that they were easy marks, easy to be taken advantage of, this belied in some ways the complexity of what had actually unfolded, that what had happened actually was much more complex, far more complicated than a cursory understanding would would permit. And it certainly was the case that many of the people who had the deepest connections to the to the angels in the Church of Love were people who were experiencing great deprivation in their lives. They were deeply lonely people. And that loneliness in some ways played a role. You mentioned the idea of complicity. On the surface, the con was so obvious and so bizarre. You know, Why would you fall in love with someone you've never met and someone you've never talked with? On the surface and from the outside, it seems so bizarre. When you're inside the world of one of these people and you understand 
understand from the inside out how they perceived the letters that were coming to them, I started to have a more compassionate understanding of how the self-deception had unfolded. Very interesting. When you talk about how they say that uh, the letters from this con man kept them from suicide or various other harms, you're really underscoring, I guess, to some extent, the fact that self-delusion can promote somebody's well-being. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's so interesting, too, is that these particular people seem to know they were being lied to, especially when they came to the defense, right, of mm-hmm. Donald Lowry. But do often, are people often aware that they are lying to themselves? And is one more healthy than the other? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, in, in the case of Don Lowry's victims, I think they sort of they spread the gamut. There were people who were outraged when they discovered that they had been conned. There were people who knew all along that it was a con and were sort of playing along because they found it to be an entertaining game. And there were people who were true believers, uh, some of whom insisted on continuing to believe after the con had been unmasked. So the, the, the members of the Church of Love came in all shades and flavors. The question you're asking about whether we're often aware of our self-deceptions, I think the answer quite emphatically is no. In fact, I think many delusions function best when you're not aware that they are delusions. Uh, You know, the experience of taste that I mentioned to you a second ago, I don't really think about taste as being a delusion. The sugar actually tastes sweet. I mean, it actually feels, I have a visceral feeling that sugar tastes sweet. The fact that it's an invention of my brain, you know, I'm certainly not aware of it until I actually understand how the brain Operate. So I think in general, delusions do function better when we are not aware of them. Of course, they also carry much greater risks in this case, because when you're not aware of a delusion, you're not aware of when the delusion is a dangerous delusion and when it can harm you. Again, we're talking with Shankar Vedantam about his new book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. And you, our listeners, can join us, letting us know if you ever knowingly indulge in a self-delusion, either to protect yourself from a difficult truth, maybe because doing so made you happy. Have you had to lie in small or not so small ways to maintain a relationship, for example? Did that work for you? Tell us what are your reactions to what you're hearing from Shankar Vedantam about useful delusions 866-733-6786 the number the email address forum at kqed.org twitter or facebook at kqed forum more after the break support for forum comes from san francisco opera Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the lies we tell ourselves with Shankar Vedantam, NPR science correspondent and host of the Hidden Brain podcast. His new book with Bill Mesler is Useful Delusions. And you, our listeners, can tell us if you have ever knowingly indulged in a self-delusion. How or why have you had to lie in small or not so small ways to maintain a relationship or come into conflict with a family member or friend who you think is harboring false beliefs or self-delusions? How did you deal with that? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Peter in Berkeley. Hi, Peter. 
Hi, thank you very much for this very important discussion. I I want to ask Mr. Vedanta uh, to discuss the uh, the difference between ill will and and, and deception. Uh, I think ill will is kind of at the root of so much of what we could properly call evil. Mm. Uh, and uh, goodwill is at the root of what we could so much call good. And uh, I was thinking to to add deception <laughs> as one of these almost equivalent to the negative value of ill will in a in a public declaration of these values, highest civic ideals. So I'm just fascinated and and appreciative of this discussion. Do you think Do you think it's the the difference between self deception? or perpetrated deception that that would be the difference between good and bad? Is, mm. is that too simple? Peter, thanks. Shankar Pedantam? So I think that's a really useful distinction, the distinction between ill will and goodwill. I love that distinction, Peter, because I think in many ways it is at the heart of what it means to be an ethical person, to really focus on a life that basically is about goodwill. Uh, but I think I will take issue with what you're saying, Peter, if you're making the assertion that Ill will is all about deception and self-deception, and goodwill is all about telling the truth. I'm afraid the distinction is not so neat. Uh, in some ways, as I said, as I'm a very rational and logical person, I would like the distinction to be as neat as that. But it turns out that it's not the case. Uh, it turns out that in many situations, uh, there are elements of deception and self-deception that can be good for us, and in fact, can contribute to enhancing the amount of goodwill on the, pl on the planet. Uh, let me give you a simple example. A number of studies find that um, in romantic relationships, people who have delusional beliefs about one another, delusional beliefs about their partner's goodness or virtues or attractiveness, these people end up being in happier relationships, in longer term relationships, more contented relationships. They act more kindly toward their partners. Now, if you could tap these people on the shoulders and basically tell them, you know, the reason you're acting you know, so nicely toward this other person is because you in fact have a delusional belief about this other person. Are you actually increasing the amount of goodwill in the world or are you potentially decreasing the amount of goodwill in the world? You know, Peter, if you and I could, could take a road trip across America and we stop by every couple getting married this year in the United States and we were to ask them, you know, what are the odds you think you're gonna get divorced? Uh, you know, a statistician might say the odds of getting divorced when you get married is about, you know, one in two, one in two marriages, approximately one in two marriages and a divorce. And so the logical and rational thing for all of those couples to say is, you know, there's no reason to think I'm particularly special. So I give myself 50-50 odds of getting divorced. I would bet you that very few people would say that on their wedding day. And the people who do say that they have a 50-50 odds of getting divorced on their wedding day, that would not be a good sign of a happy marriage if people are willing on their wedding day to countenance the fact that they might get divorced. So it might be a delusion that we believe that we're going to be with this person forever and ever, but I would argue that that might be an example of a useful delusion that also potentially enhances the amount of goodwill in the world. So then where do you draw the line between a useful or benign self-delusion and one that's harmful to ourselves or even society at large. And of course, one of the examples that comes to mind, Chakrabadantham, mm -hmm. is the big lie, right? That President Biden won the election because of voter fraud. That is mm -hmm. something that 
arguably, I guess, to, to the people who hold the false belief feels beneficial because it, it validates a certain worldview. It can recast losing as winning, but clearly mm-hmm. it's not beneficial to our democracy, for example. Yeah, that's the, you're asking a profoundly important question here, Amina. Uh, let, let's start again with the, the simple example and then go to, to the more complex example after that. Uh, on, we were talking about romantic relationships a second ago, and I was talking about how sometimes having positive delusions about your partner might actually be good for your relationship. Now, can you ask the question, is it possible that sometimes these positive delusions we might have about our partners can lead to bad outcomes? And the answer is, of course it can. You know, we all know people or have heard of people who've been in terrible relationships, sometimes abusive relationships, which are marked by domestic violence. And those people continue to hold delusionally positive views about their partners. And so delusions can serve a positive role, but because they serve a positive role, doesn't mean they always serve a positive role. They can also serve a negative role that can be deeply harmful to us and they can be deeply harmful to other people. Unfortunately, there isn't a simple formula that basically says, here is where the delusions are good and here is where the delusions are bad. I suppose if you wanted to draw that line, you would basically say, you know, and I suppose this is sort of tautological at this point, when the delusions do good in the world, they are good delusions. And when the delusions do bad in the world, they are bad delusions. But there isn't a formula up front that basically tells you, you know, this couple would be well advised not to have delusions in their relationship, or this couple would be well advised to have delusions in their relationships. Because it turns out the very same thing, the delusional belief about your partner can serve as both a bug and a feature. It can both be a negative and it can simultaneously be a positive. When you think about much grander delusions, uh, the delusions about, you know, who won an election, uh, you know, basically people willing to, for example, storm the Capitol on January 6th because they believe an election was stolen, you can see how delusions can be deeply dangerous and how they can be, in some ways, produce terrible harm. Um, You know, and I'm not for a second suggesting that those self-deceptions or those delusions are going to be good for either the people who hold them or good for the country as a whole. But I would argue that the reason people hold these delusions is often because the delusion is performing some kind of psychological purpose. I think that's one of the core ideas in my book. When we see people who have delusions, we very often just judge them based on the absurdity of the delusion. We sort of say, what a ridiculous idea. We don't stop to ask the deeper question, what function is this delusion serving? If I were to remove this delusion from this person, what is the cost that they would experience? What is the cost that they would bear? And if we were to ask that question, in other words, if we were to look at people's delusions with more empathy and compassion, with more curiosity rather than judgment, I actually suspect we would do a better job at dismantling dangerous delusions. Right now, when we are confronted by dangerous delusions, we often believe the solution is to present people with the facts. But, you know, there are a number of studies over the years that have shown that facts, in fact, do not dissuade people from their delusions. If anything, they help to solidify and entrench people's prior positions. Let me go to caller Anne in Goleta. Hi, Anne. Yes, hi. Um, I think he might have answered that, but I was going to ask what are fixed delusions and if they are harmful, how are they overcome? You did in many ways start to address that, Chakrabadantam, in saying that it's important to take into consideration the psychological benefits, for example, of those who hold the belief or why they want to hold on to it so strongly. What is the cost to them, as you say, of giving it up? 
What is the cost potentially often do you find for people to give up a belief, especially one that they find psychologically beneficial? Yeah. So in, in general, if you buy the theory that people reach for self-deceptions or delusional beliefs because those self-deceptions or delusional beliefs are performing some kind of psychological function, if you buy that idea, and again, to clarify, you know, I'm not talking about people with serious psychiatric illnesses who are basically you know, hallucinating or hearing voices. I'm not talking about delusions like that. I'm talking about the everyday delusions that we experience. If you buy the idea that those delusions, in fact, you know, even when they're misguided and even when they're wrong, they're there because they're serving some kind of psychological purpose. You have to ask, what purpose is it serving? Now, yes. the purpose that a self-deception serves in one context is not going to be the same purpose that a self-deception serves in another context. What is uh, psychologically useful for me to believe in might not be psychologically useful for you to believe in. I think this is all contextual. It's all dependent. So, for example, when it comes to politics, for example, when it comes to a you know, very hard-fought election with deeply held passions, for you to accept that your side lost might mean accepting certain psychological costs, of expecting that maybe the views that you had or the political party that you represented, in fact, its views were not shared by the majority of people, that according to the rules of the election, your side lost fair and square. And that could be painful for people to accept, especially people who believe very fervently that their side is absolutely correct, that their side could not possibly be wrong. So it's not that the self, the, the psychological rationale for self-deceptions are always the same. In fact, in every case with every person, they're likely, in fact, to be very different. But it's useful to start by asking the question, what role is this serving? Uh, I remember some years ago, Mina, I was having uh, dinner with, a, with an old college classmate of mine that I hadn't met in many, many years, a very smart, very smart young man. And he, and he told me that he believed that the United States was behind the 9-11 attacks, that the, the CIA and the FBI had planned the 9-11 attacks and had carried out the attacks as a uh, pretext for launching the war in Iraq, that the 9-11 attacks gave the United States a pretext for launching the war in Iraq. And I remember, you know, arguing with him for the next 60 minutes to 90 minutes, you know, telling him it's impossible. Can you imagine how complex such a conspiracy theory would have to be for it to come true? Imagine the number of people who would have to have been party to that. How could that not have come out? And, you know, I argued with him and tried to use facts. And at the end of 90 minutes, as you might expect, he was even more entrenched in his view. What I wish I had done and what I didn't do was I wish I had asked him more questions. Tell me why it is you believe that this is the case. Tell me what is the evidence that you're seeing. What would happen if, in fact, that this was not the case? What would have to be true for this not to be the case? In other words, almost approach this the way a teacher might approach a student, not so much to say, let me show that you are wrong, but ask the kinds of questions that get the student, in some ways, to see where they have made a mistake themselves. I think when it comes to dismantling dangerous delusions, many of us make the mistake of assuming those delusions can be dismantled from the outside. Really what we want is to have those dis delusions to be dismantled from the inside out. And to do that, the person has to start to ask themselves the question, is it possible that some part of my belief is not accurate? Is it possible that some part of my belief is misguided? The question that we have to ask from the outside is, how do I get the person to ask themselves that kind of question? Hmm. Well, we're hearing a couple of useful delusions here. Joyce writes, a day after I stopped smoking with extreme difficulty, I was about to give in and have a cigarette. Instead, I played a trick on myself. I put a cigarette to my lips, 
lit a match, pretended to light the cigarette, but did not do so. And that was the end of my craving to smoke. That was about 50 years ago, and the desire to smoke a cigarette hasn't ever come back. Another listener writes, I had a boyfriend who lived near a freeway and always complained about the noise. To me, the traffic sounded just like the ocean. So I told him to try imagining he was hearing the ocean and how calming that was. I think it helped. He stopped complaining about it. Uh, let me go to Raul in Santa Barbara. Hi, Raul. Hi, how are you? I'm well. What's on your mind? Um, I have the delusion every time that I see the mega millions hit like a half a mil or half a billion dollars and i'll buy a ticket knowing that the math is against me but uh all night i'll think about what i'm going to buy and uh you know get excited by it and i was wondering what shankar thought of those type of delusions hmm. shankar what do you think <laughs> Well, I love these examples. I love the idea of essentially reframing the, the highway traffic as the sounds of the of the ocean or, or pretending to put a cigarette to your lips and lighting it up when, in fact, you're not lighting it up. But, but Raul, I, I really like the example that you have as well. You know, the, 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 the question of the lottery is sort of a complicated question, and I think it sort of shows how difficult this terrain is. Um, you could argue in some ways that lotteries serve as a regressive tax, uh, you know, and other people have made this argument that when you think about that people who buy lottery tickets, uh, and knowing that many of them essentially are, you know, as, as you well recognize yourself, potentially throwing their money away, lotteries often function like a regressive tax in our society. Often people who are not well off are buying lottery tickets, and those lottery tickets are then subsidizing things that better off people uh, need in their daily lives. So in some ways, it's a very regressive tax. However, I will say that if you are engaging in, in playing the lottery, well aware of how the, the lottery works, but because you you know you know that you know the facts, you know that in fact your odds of winning might be, you know whatever four hundred and twenty million to one, uh, and your ten bucks is actually very unlikely to to net you you know all those millions of dollars. But the ten bucks is giving you the opportunity to spend a night where you're daydreaming about what those hundreds of millions of dollars are giving you. Arguably, you're getting your money's worth. You know, even when you don't win the mega millions, you, the the pleasure you're getting from the anticipation of the winnings that are not going to materialize, that pleasure itself might be worth the ten dollars. Now, if that's the case, I would argue that that potentially is money well spent. All of us, in many ways, spend money on things that other people might say, you know, I wouldn't. I think that's a waste of money, but that. It gives us, it's a source of pleasure for us. If that's the case for you, you know, I say, well, more power to you. We're talking with Hidden Brain podcast host Shankar Vedantam about his new book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Let me go to Don in San Jose. Hi, Don. Yeah, hi. So um, one of the uh, uh, popular delusions uh, from a, a lot of people's point of view is religion and that uh, this gives people uh, a lot of comfort in their lives, and I truly believe that, uh, on whole, that uh, religion does have a lot of benefits for a lot of people. Uh, of course, there are drawbacks to it, to uh, discrimination and so on, but uh, I would like to, uh, to hear what you think about that. My second uh, comment is, um, I heard some time ago a comment that I'd like you to comment on, which is, don't believe everything you think. In other words, ex be you know be aggressive in examining your own beliefs, as you are indeed advising here. But don't believe everything you think. Don, thanks. Shankar <laughs> Vedantam, a lot to think about, and and certainly, of course, you do tackle the religion question in your book. 
I do indeed. And these are two really big and profound questions you're asking here, Don. Um, I think when it comes to religion, you know, there's been a lot of really interesting social science research over the last, um, you know, 20 or 30 years, uh, especially actually, I would say in the last maybe 10 or 20 years, you know, asking, uh, looking at the question of religion with curiosity. I think very often when we've had debates about religion, you know, you have people who are true believers who basically say, well, of course, everything in the, in the religion is true. And you have people who are disbelievers like, you know, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, who basically say, well, none of it is true, so none of it can potentially be useful. I think in recent years, a group of social scientists have started to look at religion with more curiosity and ask questions like, why is it that every society in the planet, um, you know, going back, you know, hundreds or thousands of years, have engaged in various forms of religious belief? What, if, if for that to be true, the religion must be performing some kind of useful purpose. And in fact, they actually have argued uh, we've actually had an episode on Hidden Brain, uh, my podcast and radio show, where we've actually explored this idea in depth, that religion in some ways came about as a social innovation that basically helped large numbers of people coordinate. And in fact, it may be that organized religions, the way that we think about organized religions, came about as human beings were transitioning from nomadic hunter-gatherers to largely agrarian societies, which you know, in a, in a small tribe of 150 people, you might know everyone in the tribe. You can keep track of who has done wrong by you. You can keep track of who's doing right. When you're living in a large society of 100,000 people or 200,000 people, you can no longer keep track of people and you have, you're interacting with strangers all the time. And religions might perform a very useful role of basically punishing people or threatening people with punishment if they don't follow social norms, if they don't follow social rules. So religions in many ways can be potentially very useful. Uh, and we can certainly come back and talk about the other idea you had at the other end of the break. The one thing that I think about religion is often that it's it's a way to help us deal with our own mortality. I mean, and that, I mean, for some, for me, thinking about our inevitable death and uh, Setting that aside feels like the ultimate useful delusion. We just have about 20 seconds before the break, Shankar. <laughs> That's a huge question. Yeah, go right into it. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right, Mina. I think part of why religions work so well and they perform this role is, in fact, that many of us are recognize our own mortality and fragility, and they perform a valuable role in soothing our anxieties. That's great. We've got 10 seconds into break. ships <laughs> We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We're talking with Shankar Vedantam, NPR science correspondent and host of the Hidden Brain podcast about his new book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain, and inviting you, our listeners, to tell us if you yourself have engaged in self-delusions, big or small, why you did that, how you did that. 
have you ever done it to maintain a relationship or found that having self-delusions have created conflicts with family members or friends? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And let me read a couple more uh, comments. Linda writes, many years ago, my father passed away at age 71, but we did not tell his elderly mother to save her the pain in her last years. This deception was very helpful. I find Linda's comment really interesting because I also want to spend a little time right now, Chakar, talking about the common ways or maybe not so common ways that we deceive others. This particular deception is probably not something that you would engage in frequently, but you do cite in your book that we will deceive others about like three times for every 10 minutes in conversation. So can you talk a little bit about the common ways that, that we deceive others and, and in what settings we do it most often? Sure. So I think when we think of us, ourselves, I think most of us think of ourselves as being truth tellers. And most of us, of course, talk a good talk when it comes to telling the truth all the time. But there have been research studies that have asked people, try and go 24 hours without telling a single lie. Try and go a week without telling a single lie. And really being mindful where a lie now is not just, you know, you're actually, you know, you know, perverting the truth in some obvious way, but even shading the truth or even omitting something that is actually on your mind, all the ways in which we might tell lies of omission or commission. Um, and it turns out this is remarkably difficult to do. That, and part of the reason it's difficult to do is because the rules of social engagement and social conduct often dictate that we're supposed to be kind to one another. We're supposed to be polite to one another. We're not supposed to tell other people exactly what's on our mind all the time. Workplaces where people simply spout off whatever they have in their minds are not happy workplaces. These are often rude workplaces. You know, if you have a, a leader or a president who has no filter between his brain and his mouth, you know, that president often doesn't come across to many people as appealing. That president comes across as being potentially cruel to people. So in all kinds of ways, even though we might say we value truthfulness in all manner, in all manner of things, it turns out in day-to-day -day practice, we often find reasons to shade the truth. And in fact, the shading of the truth might actually be very important in order for us to have the kind of social relationships that we have. Uh, the example that you cited that Linda gave about uh, her, 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 the, her dad dying, I think that's a really powerful example because it talks about how I think in moments of great stress and sadness, many of us might make choices that in fact might deviate from the truth. Um, I remember some years ago, my, my own dad was dying from lung cancer and, and he was going downhill pretty fast and I would see him every so often. And each time I saw him, he looked like he was much sicker than he was the last time. And, you know, he would check in with me and eagerly, you know, he would want my updates and feedback on how I thought that he was doing. And I, of course, did not tell him, you know, I really think that you're going downhill. I think things are looking much worse than they did three months ago. I didn't necessarily come out and lie to him and say, I think things are going great. But I sort of said, you know, this is this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm sure things are going as well as can be expected. And let's be optimistic as we look forward in the future. And I think all of us do this, especially in, in relationships of people whom we love. And, and this points to the idea that 
it's very easy to talk the good talk about dismantling all delusions and dismantling all self-deceptions when you stand outside a position of vulnerability. But when you're in a position of vulnerability, when you yourself are in a position of great, of great harm and anxiety, it's very easy to reach for these self-deceptions and delusions. You know, as the old proverb goes, uh, there are no atheists in the foxhole. Let me go to caller Justin in San Francisco. Hi, Justin. Hi, um, thank you very much for this discussion this morning. Um, about a decade ago, I created my own big lie, and that was that I had a brain tumor. And this was at a time when I was kind of at my peak of my alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And I was actively or passively suicidal for the better part of five years. And for me, the solution to be able to get some sympathy um, from my friends and prepare them for my eventual passing was to create this lie. And though I had many opportunities to kind of unpack this uh, over the years, I chose to double down on it. And only after coming into recovery and wor working through the amends process um, and telling the truth to my friends did I learn that they almost all knew that I was lying. And they allowed me to have this lie because they loved me. And that's been a really powerful thing. Um, Justin, yeah. thank you, thank you for sharing that story. Um, what a, what an incredible story! I really appreciate what it took to to call us and share that with us. And it really does underscore a lot of the things that you have been bringing up, Shankar Vedantam, in terms of vulnerability, in terms of you know not just useful, but in many ways vital to our ability to engage with others and maintain our our well-being, and in Justin's case, his own survival. Indeed. And, and again, I, I, I echo what you said, uh, Mina. I, I think Justin was very brave in sort of sharing that story with us just now. And Justin, I hope that that uh, this this difficult period in your life has, has passed right now and, and you're past the point where you feel like your life is in danger and that you've gotten a hold of the, of the alcohol problem that you had. Uh, but I think it's a profound story because I think it, it, it shows the ways in which love can prompt us to basically deviate from the truth. Um, and what I found very moving about Justin's story, and in fact, to be honest, I would love to hear a little bit more about it at some point, you know, is, is Justin was lying to his friends and his, and his uh, relatives because he loved them. He wanted to spare them from the truth. And they were lying to him and hiding from him the fact that they understood that he was lying to them because they actually loved him and they understood that this was important for him to do. Now, somebody could look at this from the outside and basically say, look at this large group of people, they're all lying to one another and look at this with contempt. I actually think that this is something of a beautiful thing that Justin cared enough about the people in his life that he wanted to try and come up with ways to protect them from pain and that they in some ways were responding to him in a way that tried to protect him from pain. Now, of course, I want to be clear, it's possible, of course, in many of these situations like this, that people can end up telling lies that end up harming one another. Uh, in that case, you would have to argue the self-deception or the delusion is dangerous. But I think Justin's story is a beautiful story of how sometimes, especially in intimate relationships, when we're going through very traumatic and difficult times, we turn to false beliefs as, as a source of comfort. Uh, and, and, and I think it takes a sort of hard-hearted person to look at, at, those, at those choices and, and to criticize us. 
So let me again thank Justin for the call. And you're also, what you're talking about re reminds me a little bit about how medical providers will frequently de-emphasize negative information. But one of the things that's so interesting about this is, especially with someone with a terminal illness or when you were describing your father's situation, but what was interesting about this was that, as you note, people who who had a more optimistic outlook about their prognosis actually frequently did survive longer? Mm-hmm. That's right. So there's been a lot of research in medical settings that show that people who have a more optimistic view of their medical conditions tend to have a better prognosis than people who have a pessimistic view, but also regularly better than people who have a realistic view. That in some ways, seeing your own health conditions through rose-tinted glasses might in fact be a very powerful way to enable you to, to recover. Uh, you know, I have a personal story here, Mina, that might be of relevance. You know, some months ago, I was traveling several hours away from my home in Washington, D.C. Uh, I, I experienced an impact injury right beneath my right eye. And over the course of the next 24 hours, I started to experience a, a retina detachment um, for your listeners who are not familiar with the the, the, you know, the the structure of the eye, the retina is essentially the film behind the eye that allows you to perceive light. And if this 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 film sort of comes off its hinges, you'll essentially lose uh, vision in that sight altogether. And, and I have a family history of retinal issues. So I understood what was happening to me and I could literally see my vision disappearing before <laughs> one eye. Wow. Uh, you know, I finally found a doctor in a, in a city that I had never been to before he very kindly opened his practice for me at nine o'clock in the night. You know, and he told me he had to rush me into surgery within minutes or I was going to lose my eye altogether. You know, I put all my faith and trust in this doctor. And it turned out that faith and trust was, was well-placed because he turned out to be a brilliant doctor. But I think at some level, the fact that I trusted him as much as I did meant that when he told me to do X, Y, and Z in terms of my operative care and post-operative care, I followed his instructions to the letter. My ability to be a good patient depended in some ways on my willingness to suspend my disbelief or skepticism about him, to trust him completely. And the more I trusted him, the better my outcome wa was. Now, again, I keep saying this as a caveat to every example that I give. You can certainly have examples where people put their faith in charlatans as opposed to you know brilliant doctors and they come to bad ends. And so you can see how faith and self-deception can be, can be harmful. But I think the fact that it's sometimes harmful causes many people to believe that faith and self-deception is always harmful. And I think that's a mistake. Hmm. We're talking with Shankar Vedantam. His new book is Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. You can also hear his Hidden Brain podcast on KQED at 8 p.m. on Sundays and at 4 a.m. as well on Sundays. You can also join this conversation and talk with him now. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, thanks for sharing that story, Shankar. And let me put this question from a listener to you. The listener writes, my mother has been living a lifetime of useful delusions since growing up in post-World War II Germany. Does trauma early in life lead to self-deception? Well, that's a great question. And I think the answer to that is yes, but I, you know, I, I don't think it's limited to trauma. I think all of us in many ways come up with self-deceptions that allow us to get through our day. But I think it's absolutely the case that people who have been through traumatic events are often in a state of great vulnerability. You know, one of the great paradoxes when it comes to mental health is that many of us believe that to be mentally healthy is to see the world very clearly, to see the world realistically. 
And we believe that to have mental illness is to see the world delusionally, to see the world perhaps with a del delusional pessimism. Now, I, I, of course, it's the case that there are some serious psychiatric illnesses where people literally are not able to see and hear the truth. They are, you know, they hear voices or they, they have hallucinations. But, but for most of us, it turns out that in fact, being mentally healthy involves some ability to to come up with useful to come up with useful delusions because it turns out that some people so let's say you've been through a very traumatic event now you come, maybe you have an event where you've come close to losing your own life or you've seen people very close to you uh, being killed or being harmed it's actually not unreasonable for you to carry that fear with you the rest of your life because in fact you've seen you've come close to you've seen how close you've come to death yourself and so it's not unreasonable for you in some ways to carry that with you for the rest of your life what do we do when we have patients who come in who are so traumatized by their past that in fact they're not able to function in their day-to-day -day lives? We come up with therapies that in some ways seek to place the traumatic event back on the shelf, uh, not to sort of ignore it forever, not to forget it entirely, but to put it back so that it's no longer occupying a significant part of our mental space, allowing us thereby to go forward in our life. And in some ways this speaks to what you said earlier, Mina, about sort of the role of religion in helping us cope with, you know, existential fears or fears of our, our own mortality. Um, you know, I, I think it's absolutely the case that sometimes people who've been through traumatic things uh, can reach for delusional beliefs to cure them. But I would not see this necessarily always in a pejorative sense. I, I would argue that some, some amount of mental health, in fact, does involve seeing the world delusionally, seeing the world through rose-tinted glasses. Um, research studies have found, for example, that sometimes people who have depression and anxiety are actually better able to perceive reality accurately than people who are quote-unquote mentally healthy. And I think that's another piece of evidence that suggests that sometimes, you know, appropriate functioning, quote-unquote normal functioning, might involve some, am some amount of self-deception and delusional thinking. Let me go to caller Jake in Oakland. Hi, Jake. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call, tying into what you're just talking about here. Um, a common refrain that I hear from, you know, often from religious or spiritual people after, you know, a, a traumatic event in your life is uh, something to the effect of everything happens for a reason or it was all part of God's plan. I'm, I'm not a religious or spiritual person, and while I understand that that, you know, offers some sense of purpose or, or, or comfort to the person who's gone through a traumatic experience, when I'm the one who's been through that traumatic experience and I hear that sentiment said to me, it, it, it does not help. It's, in fact, somewhat offensive to me. It says, oh, you know, your, your traumatic experience was actually, you know, part of a plan or, you know, somebody imposed this upon you if it's God's will. I don't find that comforting at all. And so I think it's kind of a question of where's the ethical limit of spreading your own self-delusion to others? Because, frankly, you might be harming them through your own delusions. Hmm. Shankar Vedantam, your reaction to Jake's point? Yeah, I think Jake is exactly onto something. I, I think the fact that certain self-deceptions work for us, but they don't work for other people should be entirely unsurprising. Now, I, I, I don't hear Jake sort of expressing contempt or judgment of the people who seek those beliefs, who, for whom those beliefs, in fact, do provide comfort. Uh, to be able to say, you know, this all happened for a reason, that there was a purpose behind it. If that brings me comfort, I don't hear Jake necessarily expressing contempt or judgment for those for those beliefs. I certainly think it would be a mistake to basically go to someone like Jake for whom those beliefs do not offer comfort and say, this is the appropriate way to think. Uh, I think all of us find ways to sort of cope with the challenges around us, uh, you know, over the course of the last 12 months in the pandemic. 
uh, I find myself sort of regularly reaching for delusional beliefs. You know, I've told myself, you know, almost every single day of the past year that, you know, liberation is one month away. Uh, liberation mm. is six weeks away. Yes. Uh, and at some level, I think I've known that that is a delusional belief. I've known that that wasn't the truth, but it's given me comfort. Now, for someone else, perhaps for Jake, you know, perhaps that thought would not have given him comfort. Uh, I think it would be a mistake for me to tell him that just because it gave me comfort, that that same belief needs to give everyone else comfort. I want to read a couple of final comments. Patricia writes, delusions of a multicultural world where we appreciate and respect one another makes me happy and hopeful. This is something I would like to be actualized. But when I have revealed this over the past several decades, I've been met with mockery as if I were in fact delusional. This made me feel stupid and wrong. Now I believe in this delusion and hold it in my heart as something that is possible. And it comforts me to give it space to be possible. Mark writes, I acknowledge yet choose to participate in daily delusions regarding the caste system I live in, rationalizing why unhoused people are somehow different from me, that somehow the earth is not actually dangerously polluted, and other seemingly needed delusions to simply get through the day. I'm interested in your reaction to these two comments, Shankar, with the minute or so that we have left, just because you began this conversation talking about climate change. And Clearly, there are problems that we have to face that are being acknowledged by these last two commenters. So how can we use this? Clearly, to some extent, we're using it to get through our day, as Mark says. But how can we also use this ultimately to solve the bigger problems that they also raise, these comments also raise? Yes, I think these are both profoundly important and useful contributions. So, so thank you, Patricia, and thank you, Mark. Um, I, I will say that I think it's understandable why people reach for delusional beliefs, uh, even as we go about our daily lives, to be fully aware of all the suffering in the world, all of the injustice in the world, if you're aware of it all the time. Not only is it deeply painful, but it's also possible that at a certain time it can become paralyzing that in some ways it can prevent us from doing what it is that we can do. Uh, many people who are highly effective at actually engaging with the world are able to keep in mind simultaneously the problems with the world, but also to maintain some amount of optimism about how things can, can get better. Uh, the one thing that I will say is that when it comes to challenges like climate change or homelessness or any number of other challenges that we face in our lives, the mistake that I think we make is that just because we can rationally see our way to the right answer, we assume that reason is the only way to get to the right answer. Sometimes beliefs and self-deceptions might in fact be the way to do that. If we can engage people in the cause of protecting the planet Earth and engaging in seeing it as a sacred value, perhaps that might not be rational, but it might lead us to the ends that we want. Shankar Vedantam, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Tanka Vinatham's new book is Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Thanks, Susan Britton, for producing this segment. Thanks to our listeners for their comments. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.